It's kind of fun, right? This ironic, twisted way whenever we recite that liturgy after some of these readings. I've taken it out a few times with certain texts. We've just taken it out. We're like, ugh. We hear the voice of God through these words? That's kind of hard to say with some of this stuff. I don't know if you've ever read the Old Testament before, but um, it's kind of difficult. And if I'm honest, this whole series has been difficult. Matt and I, Fran, we were talking about this last week. We had all this energy around doing an Old Testament series and the most terrible texts in it. And I don't know what we were thinking, because that was hard for us to write those sermons. Sifting through all these stories has been kind of like bringing up old wounds to the surface, having to dress them again and again, trying to explain them. Um, It's kind of painful. It's not an easy task. In fact, I waited until Thursday afternoon to even choose a sermon text. And I don't know if you know this, but you have to have one of those to write a sermon. We're talking about terrible stories in the Old Testament, and I found myself overwhelmed by all the options. My mind went to Dinah, who was raped, and in order to undo her shame, her father, Jacob, that guy, married her to her rapist. It went to Noah's Ark and that flood in which God destroyed all of creation, just picked a select few who made the cut to stay alive. I thought about the unnamed concubine in Judges 19. We'll cover that one next week, the one where her owner cut her up into little pieces and sent those out to the regions. Um, I thought about Jeff Tath and, you know, the guy who sacrificed his young daughter because of his own ego, really. It's my take on it. Um, I also thought about the entire book of Job. Anyone ever thought of that one was problematic? How God orchestrated this loss and suffering to the extreme, all for the sake of building up Job's faith. I considered Sodom and Gomorrah, in which God rains down hellfire and brimstone on the entire city. That would be men, women, children, babies, killing them all. Even Lot's wife was turned into a pillar of salt for daring to look back on what had been her home. And then, of course, I thought about Lot, who offered his daughters to be ravaged by strangers if only they didn't harm his guests. And I was faced with a predicament. Do I go with war, specifically genocide, sexual assault, or just keep it simple with one-on-one murder? So I ended up choosing a text that I thought had a little bit of everything. All the thinking and rethinking until my brain hurt reminded me of my time in seminary. It was an intense time of the rug constantly being pulled out from under me. It was stretching and uncomfortable. But in the end, it was so worth the risk and the challenge of questioning every single thing I ever thought I knew about God. My favorite and also the hardest class that I ever took was my Old Testament class learning about the importance of paying attention to the context, the historical background, the genre. It was a lot of work, but I left that class feeling joy about the Bible that I hadn't experienced in years. It breathed new life and new energy into my approach, and it has been my intent to share that energy with you people ever since, which is why if you go back and look, nearly half of my sermons will be from the Old Testament. Because I want us to understand that we can be free from how we thought we had to read it. 
We can be free to breathe new life into it, new interpretation, new creativity, mystery, radical truth. We can breathe these things back into this sacred book. And I believe this matters. I believe this is an important part of our journey as people of God. And it doesn't matter if you're a pastor or a business person or a teacher, or physical therapist, nurse, software engineer, whatever you do for a living, it doesn't matter. The reality is we are all people of God. And if we're here, we're probably concerned with the things of God to an extent. We are people of God. But what does that mean, right? Some people, actually a lot of people, and they're all meeting right now, <laughs> make it really complicated with rules and doctrine and lines in the sand with labels and requirements and checklists. I say, if we're going to call ourselves Christians, it's simply because we choose to follow Christ, the way of Jesus. And if you are here, you likely believe that Jesus embodied what it means to be a person of God in the world. After all, he walked among us, God on earth, in human form. So for us, as people of God, we follow. Because on whatever level, we're all searching for something deeper. Our souls long for it. That is the spirit of God in you. We are searching for deeper meaning, whether it be in our jobs or our families, our everyday lives. And if you find it worthwhile to come here each week, especially if you were already doing the whole God thing all day yesterday at the retreat, if you find it worthwhile to be here, it might be that you've discovered you most often find that deep sense of meaning when you encounter the divine. And following Jesus has so far been your best bet in experiencing many of these encounters. So Jesus, right, from what I can tell. The story of Jesus is told through Christian tradition, through the Bible, which is the holy book of Christianity. From an orthodox perspective, the Bible as a whole is canon, meaning the entirety of it is accepted as inspired text. Not one part of it, the whole shebang. Regardless of your orthodoxy, when we study the life of Jesus, we have to look to the Bible as a whole to get the fuller picture. It's just like with any of us. Our stories are important to being known. I can't know you and you can't know me in a deep way without knowing something about each other, right? About where we came from, what we've been through. And every time we listen and learn and dig deep into someone else's experience, we know each other more fully. It's the same with Jesus. All these stories in the Old Testament mean something. They provide us with a more intimate understanding of Jesus. Because through them, we learn about the kind of world he was born into, the traditions he was shaped by, his people, their customs. It's all significant. We don't hold up the gospel stories in isolation. We examine it all under the light because it's all a part of the same story, the holy narrative of Christ, the redeeming message of the way of love. God is revealed to us. We hear the voice of God somehow in these stories. So here we are, hunkered down in the Old Testament, and for me, it represents digging deeper because it is so much more difficult for us to take these stories in. The message is less obvious. The reading's more daunting. The teachings of Jesus are just easier on the modern ear. It takes more work to try and find relevance in ancient Israel. 
but we do it anyway. And we allow all our exploring to provide us with a more meaningful faith. So I was reading various articles this week about the Old Testament stories and how troublesome they can be. And I, just, I was kind of Googling. I went on one site. I wasn't even paying attention to what the site was. I just, it was the list of all the terrible texts. I was reading the bullet-pointed lists. Turns out it was an atheist site in which the concluding argument was, and I quote, Anyone who claims to admire and worship the biblical God has either abandoned all sense of moral judgment or has never actually read the Old Testament. Ouch. But, you know, I think he makes a fair point. I wasn't even offended in the least. We need to actually read the Old Testament. And then... Our job isn't to try and cover up the scandals of the Bible, and it isn't to justify them, but it's to call them out. It's to admit that the Bible is problematic, and at the same time, it's to be able to answer why we are sticking around in spite of it. It's a practice we should regularly incorporate into our spiritual lives. I call it the big why. Maybe I should write a book. Maybe I should write a book called The Big Why. I'll think about it later. Okay. Why are we doing all of this? Why are we here today? Why does any of this matter? Why do we need it? The more I read through these disturbing Old Testament stories, the more I grow as a human, the more I wake up to societal wounds over the course of history, the harder it is for me to accept the Bible in the same way that I used to. And my work becomes greater because the why gets bigger. The stakes feel higher, and I must dig deeper, which means that I have to incorporate spiritual practice into my life to sustain my faith. If I'm going to find an answer that I can live with to this why, spiritual practice is a necessity. We all have a different answer to the big why because we're all in different places on our journeys. But none of us can answer the why without the work. I can tell you my why, but it'll be different than yours. It'll be different than mine was yesterday. At the end of the day, though, if each of us consider ourselves people of God, if we believe we need the hand of Christ upon us to guide us, we've got to have some level of self-awareness of our own why. And we have to be willing to come back to it and reevaluate it regularly. It's a deeply personal question, and it's a deeply personal process. And I ask you, if you need an assignment from this sermon, to consider this beyond today, beyond this gathering. What is the answer to your why? It's an emotional and spiritual process, but part of answering the big why is also going to be critical. We have to read the Bible and engage our faith critically. Our culture has been given predominantly one way to make sense of Christianity. This way has been harmful, right, to people on the margins. This way has sustained patriarchy and racism and other institutionalized forms of prejudice. It has used these terrible stories as tools for justification. By us doing the work of reading these stories more critically, we are changing the cultural landscape of Christianity. We are reclaiming, which is an important work 
And a tradition that, while beautiful, also has the ability to wield so much power and cause so much harm. In our reclaiming, we become a part. This is the exciting part for theology nerds. Matt, I see you. <laughs> In our reclaiming, we are a part. We become a part of the subversive tradition of our faith, a tradition that is woven throughout the biblical narrative. So exciting. Revealing to us the movement of the Spirit. It's so often this loving presence of God that prevails, despite the violence, despite the misogyny, and the oppression prevalent in these ancient stories. This is why I chose the story I did for today's reading. Because when read at face value, you just might miss the depth of defiance in it, the subversive way in which God is revealed. And it really is amazing because we see the movement of the Spirit through the presence of not one, which would have been radical enough on its own, but two women. And so I wanted the whole story read for a few reasons. First, I wanted to introduce Deborah's role. This is mostly a story about JL to me, but I wanted to introduce Deborah's role because it's significant to the narrative of JL. Two, I wanted to watch in delight as our readers attempted to pronounce all those names and places. It was very fun for me. <laughs> I normally like to read my own text before a sermon. This week I was like, hmm. Let them do it. Three, I wanted to test your attention span. Good job. You seem to pay it. You seem to listen all the way through. Four, I wanted to give you the full context of the story. Context is always key, especially in the Old Testament. It is never what meets the eye. When we gloss over the story of JL, we are tempted to perceive her in a negative light. Go back and reread it in your first read you probably perceive her in a negative light. She is the typical picture of a kind of biblical woman, one that society has painted in a certain light concerning the basic nature of women. Despite her heroics, she seemingly acts as a snake, a seductress who, even though is on the winning side, seems to have sought out this poor man, Sisera, invited him into her tent, tricked him, and killed him. It's a great text for men who hate women to read if they want to keep hating women. Um, but when you dig deeper, when you consider the customs of the day surrounding hospitality, war, power, property, you learn that every action and reaction in the story pivots on Sisera's intention to rape JL in order to claim power over her household. This is why this was his intention. Based on societal norms of the time, Sisera approaching Jael's tent and Jael directly is an act of both rape and war. That Sisera even made it to her tent would have meant that he intentionally eluded the warriors assigned to protect a wife of the household. Seeing that this happened, surely Jael acts smartly to bide her time. She has no choice but to invite him in. She is forced. Because of this, stay with me, Sisera does not merit the protection which was afforded a guest by a host. This is a very important detail. Think about Lot, who was willing to sacrifice his daughters for his guests. Hospitality was extremely important, and you kept to the rules of hospitality. But Sisera did not merit the protection which was afforded a guest by a host. Many interpretations treat JL, though, as a host who betrays her guest instead of a hero who defends her household from an intruder. 
In this story, JL acts shrewdly from within the liminal, limited position in which she exists as a woman in ancient Israel. And about that terrible way in which she kills Sisera, Matthews and Benjamin, you can find that source in your guide, say that the hammer and the peg are sexual symbols. The male who violated the door of her tent is penetrated by the woman he threatened. So his sentence is designed to fit his crime. It's a very powerful metaphor. So from our modern context, we, we still see gruesome violence, right? Again, this means that the world is improving, that we read that and think it's crazy. But looking at the dominant consciousness of the day, JL is a hero. And on top of that, if you remember the first part of the story, the one where Deborah predicts all of this, then you realize that Sisera falls into the hands of two women in one day. Kind of awesome. <laughs> JL and Deborah both act in contrast to the war heroes of the story who failed to fulfill their responsibilities, and both are later celebrated as equals among an all-star lineup of powerful men. So that was my little example. Reading it with this understanding of the context changes things, right? When we dig deep in scripture, we find this subversive stream running through it. I call it the spirit of God. Because we, society, make all these mistakes, right? Over and over again, we screw it up. This is the pattern in all these terrible stories, too. It's ugly stuff. But when you actually search for God in the text, not flawed man, but God, you find some pretty redeeming stuff you might not have noticed before, like liminal women kicking ass from the margins. This defiant spirit of God flows throughout the veins of our holy book. We just have to look closer. So, when we read some of these troublesome stories, we don't just robotically recite meaningless liturgy. I'm so glad you guys didn't. I don't know what you said. We said He said we hear the voice of God through these words uncomfortably, and then there was a bunch of different murmuring. <laughs> So I was glad to hear that you don't just robotically recite this meaningless litur liturgy. Instead, we rightly ask, where? Where is the voice of God in these words? And if we can hear them, it's only because we searched for them. And often, despite ourselves, we somehow find glimpses of God among the muck when we do. And it's not just the world of the Bible. The world is still in chaos, Right? Even as we move closer to the kingdom of God, even as some things about society seem to be getting better, terrible things still happen every day. And we are overwhelmed by it. We are fatigued from every direction in which our hearts seek to extend compassion. And we recognize that not just us, but the world needs the peace and love of Christ, divine peace and love. But we are it. We're it. Remember, Christ has no body now but ours. No hands, no feet, but ours. So we follow. As people of God, we follow. Part of the following is answering this why. And not just emotionally or spiritually, but also critically in order to reclaim this beautiful tradition that is ours too. It's ours to reclaim. We look at the stories and search for the redemptive nature of God shining through. And we discover a God who is bigger than our boxes. We discover a creative, 
and mysterious God, a radically inclusive, loving, always welcoming God, a just and grace filled to the brim God. And we choose to believe in it. We choose to believe in it. In the end, the answer to our why always comes down to our own faith and our own choice. So, no joke, I got this quote off my tea bag when I was working on the sermon in the middle of the night one night, because we we'll waited till Thursday. Retreat on Saturday. I'll let you do the math. <laughs> it said, your strength is your own belief. Your strength is your own belief. Our strength is our belief. Not our intellect, not our right theology, but our ability to just decide to hold on, to choose to keep digging, to reclaim where necessary, to let go where crucial, our ability to choose to believe in this faith of ours. This is our strength. It's not a weakness. It's a strength. So may the Spirit of God compel us to continue asking why. And even as we struggle through it, even as we question, as we wrestle again and again, may this Spirit of God offer us daily strength to choose to believe it's worth it. For the sake of following Jesus, for the sake of being his hands, his feet, his body on earth, we pray. Amen.